welcome to Creating Coalitional Gestures, a BIWOC podcast by and for Black, Brown, and Indigenous women of color in writing studies. This is a digital space by and for self-identified women, both cis and trans, as well as non-binary scholars of color. I am your host, Edis Ruiz. This podcast is a collaboration between Spark Writing and Working for Change series and scholars in rhetoric and writing in an effort to create resilient strategies. We are pro-Black, pro-Brown, pro-women, pro-Indigenous. We envision this podcast as a healing justice project seeking to transform the impact of BIWOC on the field of writing studies. Creating coalitional gestures will take you on a journey. We will explore what healing means in writing studies by conversing with scholars, teachers, activists, and writers of color. We gesture towards healing in creating coalitions of women of color in order to remedy the silences because our culture, stories, and unique experiences continue to sustain us. We celebrate our traditions, our struggles, our triumphs, and our world as many of us are still searching for connection, recognition, belonging, and legitimation while honoring who we are as critical writing studies practitioners who also delve on the margins of cyborg and queer identities. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to CCG Podcast. I am very happy to be here today with Dr. Candice De Leon Zebeda, who's out at Our Lady of the Lake University in San Antonio, Texas. And we're here today to talk about her work and her latest book. Um, I'm going to go ahead and let Candice introduce herself so we can learn a little bit more about her position at Our Lady of the Lake and about her research interests and her future interests. So let's welcome Candice. Awesome, I so am happy to be here. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, so I'm an associate professor uh, in uh, English, but I'm also balancing another role, which is the chair of the Department of Undergraduate and Graduate English. And very recently, uh, the Ruben M. and Veronica Salazar Escobedo School of Mass Communication and Theater. It's a long name, I know. <laughs> um, that school just uh, had its blessing, its formal blessing uh, this semester during COVID, which was very strange. Um, and so, uh, yeah, uh, lots of uh, work in administration and you know the opportunity to often teach uh, undergraduates more frequently than I do graduate students. Wow, thank you very much about that. Um, do you think there's a connection there between your two different stances in terms of looking at like creative arts with administration at all? Yeah, it's an interesting Seeing, I don't like to use the word balance so much. I like to see it as I feel, and I often say this when I speak to my grad students, that um, teaching for many of us is is vocational, um, and you know, so you're called to always teach. So for me, even as an administrator, I feel especially as you know, so few administrators and department chairs are women of color, let alone Latinas. I'm always teaching the people around me. I'm teaching a lot of my other uh, chairs uh, who don't have the same experiences that I do as a Latina and a Chicana. And I'm also teaching upper administration and advocating for things that normally they would never think about when it comes to liberal arts or funding. And so, yeah, it's, it's this constant cycle of teaching. So I don't ever leave that teaching role behind when I'm chairing, so to speak. Thank you so much. It's always nice to see women of color in positions where they can have a really great impact. And um, it sounds like you're doing some really great work over there at your institution. And um, really why I wanted to, I was so excited about interviewing you today was because I saw that you recently published, um, you co-authored 
teaching Gloria Ansaldúa pedagogy and practice for our classrooms and communities, which just came out, it seems like September 2020. So it's very, very recent. And I have to tell you, when I saw the two announcements, I was just so excited. I was just like, I really have to talk to her about this. And, um, and so we want to definitely be able to get, get into talking about this experience and about what this book is about. Um, but I think it'd be really helpful for our audience to get a good sense of um, kind of your grad school experience and your research interests there and the path that you might have taken from there in order to get to this point in co-authoring this book. And um, so let's go ahead and get started. Um, so Candace, what do you think the tenor is of your research right now? How does it stem from some of the work that you did in grad school? And thinking about that, um, what informs your research and what theoretical frameworks might you be interested in? And I know that's a lot, so we can <laughs> go up with the first part and um, you know, talk a little bit about your research right now and how you think it's evolved since grad school. Sure, so great question. Um, I have been concentrated in studying basically what a Hispanic serving institution is for well over a decade. I mean, probably going on 15 years now. It's always kind of centered my research and attention. Um, and I, I think that through the years, there's been different layers of how to like study what the work of an HSI is meant to do, um, either historically the value and what happened in legislation to create and institutionalize these universities that ultimately were supposed to target um, Hispanics um, and having some kind of access to higher education, which clearly still isn't the case. So for a while there, there was this kind of fascination with the history and the legislation and the law. But more recently, I've just been really kind of uh, uh, trying to focus on how, especially in my role as a department chair, um, are we really serving the students that were meant you know, that, to populate these institutions? And are we serving them with culturally relevant pedagogies um, uh, classroom assignments, programming, um, even down to assessment. And clearly the answer is we're not <laughs> still, we have lots of work to do. But that common question has been since I was in grad school. And so, you know, the story from that is I went to Texas A&M Corpus Christi and they had a very true cohort system. And so you came in with a cohort and which I actually really appreciated, but um, you know, most people of color, especially at our level will say, you know, you were one of a few people of color. <laughs> like there wasn't a lot of us out there. And one of the first courses I took was a Bibbit research course. And I remember the faculty woman, a woman, a white woman said, Okay, so we're at an HSI and all of us raised our hand. Well, what does that mean? And she said, ah, it's just basically a, a place that it's a name only. And I felt like she couldn't answer me. And I followed up to the point where she was clearly annoyed with me, like, you know, can I find more information? So at that point, you know, the internet was really kind of brand new. <laughs> so you had to go to like the archives and research what an HSI was. And then I learned she was really wrong and just miseducated in, in what HSIs were. So this was a very pivotal point in my graduate experience because I actually, uh, I wasn't supposed to go to grad school. So as an undergrad, I struggled with connecting to classrooms and connecting to faculty and the curriculum. And I can't even tell you how many times I thought about dropping out. Um, I can't talk about my undergraduate time without giving a brief background in my family time. So, you know, I come from South Texas and both of my parents did seasonal migrant work with their families. You know, my mom went to a high school in uh, South Texas called Robstown High School, which is home of the cotton pickers. And their mascot is actually a little cotton ball. <laughs> It's all smiling. 
And um, so, you know, my dad had about an eighth grade education, which was common at that time for Latino males. And um, he eventually found access through joining the military because, you know, he lived on a farm with 12 brothers and sisters and, you know, all he had was this work ethic and then they're, you know, dangling, you got free food and AC and just joined the military. So he did. Um, and, you know, my mother, although she excelled in her classes, was never told about college and she was a vocational student, which ironically, um, I'll get to that. Um, so I say that story because, you know, education was never a thing in my household. In my household, it was a work ethic. Mm-hmm. You know, working hard, your your character is everything, and family is everything, and your word is everything. And so by the time I got to high school, I actually was in the same vocational program my mother was. By the time I was a senior, I only went to school to like noon because I went and worked in my dad's time tire store. He eventually opened a tire store and it became a family business. And, you know, we were all kind of indoctrinated that you work for pops and, you know, I busted tires and learned mechanical work. And, you know, I'm a good daughter by working with the family. And so my family found out you could go to school half the time and come work for us. Well, yeah, vamos, andale, come. They, it never dawned on them like that I was being funneled out of the school system. Mm-hmm. At the time, this is the early 90s, uh, Texas had passed a law uh, that if you hadn't passed standard tests, you didn't graduate. You weren't allowed to graduate and walk the stage. So this was the tax or task or whatever name it was. And I was a horrible test taker. And it took me like four times to finally try to pass it. And I think that the people that helped during that kind of made me learn those answers with them pointing at it. But I share that because a high school counselor had told me it may be a better idea for me to drop out because taking a GED would be an easier test for me. And I remember I said, you know, let me give this this testing one more try. And by the fourth time I had passed, So I didn't go to college right away. I worked with my parents for a while and it was, uh, you know, probably by the time I was 19 or 20, um, I was unloading a trailer load of tires with my pops. And I remember him saying like, why are you here? Like be better than me. And so on our lunch break, I went to a local community college, Del Mar college in Corpus Christi, Texas, go Vikings. (laughs) And I, I didn't know anything. And I had a water, uh, we have a burger national chain called Whataburger. And we compete with In-N-Out. In-N-Out just moved to Texas. But I went on my lunch break and some senora was like, you look lost. What are you doing here? And I'm like, well, I, I just have questions. How do I do this whole school thing? And then providentially, she happened to work in the registrar and was like, well, let me walk you through the system. And an hour and a half later, she registered me. And I, she was, and to this day, I don't remember her name, but I failed any, I didn't take the SATs or ACTs or any of that because I was meant to work. Yeah. Almar had their own kind of testing and I failed everything. And so I had to take remedial writing and remedial math. So when most students take a community college education, now clearly it's meant to be two years. It took me almost four and a half, five years to get out of community college. I had no idea about financial aid literacy. I just kind of went through the motions and then somehow ended up at AM as an undergrad. But I made a close connection with one mentor, Glenn Blaylock, mm-hmm. who eventually, as you know, you know, started CompuPile. And he was the chair at the time. And I don't know what it was about Glenn, but he saw something in me and he asked me to consider grad school and uh, without really me knowing it he kind of I already passed the deadline to apply but he had already helped start the paperwork and then all of a sudden he's like I think you'd be a good teacher you need to go you're going to be teaching seminar that will help pay for your education 
and you'll learn how to teach. And so I went into a big old room at a university, all solita. Here I was, this chicanita, like, where am I? What am I doing here? <laughs> and they're like, here's a syllabus. Here's a book. Good luck. You start school on Monday. And I'm like, <laughs> so that kind of started this curiosity of my, what is part of my epistemology is work ethic. Mm -hmm. like you work and you give a hundred percent and a lot of the people that I was working with that had the honor to have these fellowships they weren't taking it seriously and I felt like if I'm going to teach I want to be the best teacher I don't care if it's seminar I want these students to know that I'm showing up and so it got to the point where I was very curious about pedagogy and all the information at that time, there was nothing that looked like me. Mm. There was no one that sounded like me. And, and I looked and I looked and then I happened to be in a, a discipline where we, uh, you know, talked about pedagogy. So I was in the rhetoric and composition program at A&M's graduate program. Mm -hmm. But we were a few uh, people of color and you know i was always the one instigating okay so how does this work when you're teaching a whole classroom of migrant workers or or bilingual students or you know uh populations or demographics that don't look like all of us and no one had the question no one could answer those questions and so it became this fascination with pedagogy. And then when I learned what HSI wasn't, it's like, hey, she's got that wrong. You know, a Hispanic serving institution is meant and designed to ultimately help mi gente rise to a certain level of having this access to a higher ed. And so while searching and pers this pursuit for HSIs, pedagogy always came with it mm -hmm. it wasn't me wanting to be a better teacher it was wanting to make sure that the students of color were seen mm -hmm. i think one thing that i've seen in the literature for the last decade often from scholars of color especially in our field is we were never seen like mm -hmm. we always felt invisible yeah. you know just uh, so you know i uh, teach a grad class on pedagogy and theory in the spring. Uh, we just adopted your book on composition. So maybe you could zoom in to meet all of our grad students. Awesome. And um, your introduction really, you know, was like my experience. It's like none of this, these scholars looked like me or understood what it meant to be invisible, what it meant to search and the, pursue this home building. You know, I was looking for a home in academia that allowed me to use my own literacies to understand what student agency meant. And, um, and that just wasn't happening in grad school. And so by the time I entered the PhD program, it was just this drive of, I wanted to be able to work on scholarship or work with other scholars that understood what it meant to not only teach at a Hispanic serving institution, but to know why those schools exist and how your pedagogy has to sh shape into these spaces in order to help these students feel seen. And, um, and that's kind of what took me into this book and all the other kind of publications that I've done leading to this book it's helping students and I'm helping faculty understand how to access this language. Mm -hmm. um, I know I've gone on a rare, but is some of this kind of making sense with that question? So much of it is making sense with the question. Thank you so much for that heartfelt story, um, testimonial that you gave, because I think a lot of us can see ourselves within that story. It's so super important just to think about how many of us you know, share these common paths and uh, talking about access to education, for example, and um, you know, bringing visibility to students of color um, 
and, and that being very much informed by your own experience. And as you said, you know, having these expectations um, from being in a Mexican household that, you know, struggling with ideas of assimilation and accommodation, I think so many of us can, um, it resonates, right, with so many of us. So, um, um, so let's go ahead and go on to the second part of the question then, because um, we definitely want to learn more. So for the second part, we're looking more so at um, maybe thinking about your experience and going forward, how this helped you to decide which theoretical frameworks you might be interested in or that you actually use in your, um, your pursuit of like unique uh, pedagogical approaches for the way that you see your experience and the experience of students of color. So let's look at, you know, specifically focusing on theoretical frameworks that you might be interested in. Sure. So my grad program really equipped me with the language of, you know, the post-process movement. That was sort of the hype at the time. Um, and as you know, in the field of rhetoric and composition, like it has just glaring gaps in the voices of people like me and you. They just almost were very non-existent for a while, other than Victor's work with bootstraps. So for me, it became this pursuit of what this can't be it you know i mean there had you know i remember when i read lisa del pet i felt like look she's on the right track but i i i was still hungry for more information it wasn't until i took a chicana um feminist literature course surprisingly by a german-american professor at a m where I was introduced to Chicana feminists and other women of color theorists. And I remember thinking, this is it. But it was under this gaze and a branding of like Latinx literature or feminist literature. And so those conversations weren't happening in the field of rhetoric and composition at that time. There was no bridge building. And I felt particularly, you know, when talking about the book, Gloria Anzaldúa for me really kind of just like allowed me to see where there could be connections and how her work was so interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary. And I felt like there was this glaring absence in the field of rhetorical and written communication and theory and these alternative ways to look at the body because, you know, one of the things about writing and as teachers who teach writing, you know, I remember uh, in my dissertation, I like just attacked Bloom's taxonomy 20 million different ways. I was taught that Bloom's taxonomy was the way that someone learns. And I, I tell you, so many faculty just probably remember me as being like rebellious and I challenged their work of like a triangle, really? So students come in with no knowledge at all. <laughs> like I, that, I just blew my mind. But the work of Chicana feminists really kind of gave me new language. So particularly, I was always drawn to, well, what about the body? You know, if a student doesn't feel seen, they will feel as if their body is not present. And you're asking them to hold a pen or to type, but their body is not gonna participate in that because ultimately their flesh and blood experiences are not part of the classroom discussion or dialogue. Mm -hmm. So Chicana feminists like Gloria Anzaldúa, a lot of her work concentrates on the flesh and blood experience, theories in the flesh, for instance, that our bodies, you know, are, are uh, epistemologies we bring to this world, this politic, and, and we have to be able to use that to theorize our own experiences. And, you know, I, there's this constant theme in Chicana feminism of home building and spaces that are home. And, and, and a lot of that also deals with when you're outside of the spatial reality that's safe, there's trauma. Mm -hmm. and, and that, you know, these experiences uh, that often many people of color have felt, uh, it, it, they're traumatizing. And so when you're in a space where you're taught that your language doesn't matter or your stories don't matter, your narratives don't matter, like your body's going to not, it, it will either react or not act 
and then you're not participating in this, what you know, Freire calls a liberatory education. So Chicana feminists really were a game changer for me. And through their work, you know, everything else kind of came into place, like critical race theory and Latinx theory. And actually, you know, all of these theories that are siloed outside of rhetoric and composition. Mm -hmm. So I was one of the people in, in UTSA's doctoral program, I was actually recruited by Norma Cantu, and she really kind of celebrated with me, like, I asked her, can I bridge these works together? And she's like, of course. And I'm like, well, it hasn't really been done a lot. She's like, well, then make it done, like fill that gap. And so since, you know, HSIs, it's really moved and evolved towards how we could look at other theories um, outside of rhetoric and composition and how they can inform those theories um, and then how we can use those theories at a broader level to where we're not just sort of uh, concentrating on composition in itself. Because ultimately, as you know, students need to understand their own agency as writers, regardless of what degree they're in. Like we want students who are informed writers in and outside of the university. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's kind of like where I'm rooted in with my sisters over there and Chicana feminism. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Um, that is actually a really great segue into talking a little bit more about the book, which um, you have mentioned a couple of different aspects of specifically thinking about, um, you know, theories of the flesh and home building and this idea of um, how when one doesn't see their body, you know, in their surroundings, then they, how can they see it um, in reality or how can they embody themselves and, and how this relates to, you know, trauma and this type of pedagogical trauma, right? And being invisible, there's just so much there to unpack. Um, but it's a good segue into talking about the book. And so I know our audience is really probably waiting like, oh, we wanna hear more about the book. <laughs> so let's go ahead and, and talk a little bit about what this might mean for actually bringing that type of theoretical framework into the classroom. Um, and so your book is titled Teaching Gloria E. Ansaldua, Pedagogy and Practice for Our Classrooms and Communities. And that's just a really you know, amazing title within itself. So do you want to talk to us a little bit about this experience? Because there's so many things to talk about. But the experience of publishing the book, of working with Norma Cantu, of, of forging this new space that you're talking about in this collaboration. Yeah, well, you know, uh, it, it's an interesting story because Margaret actually was the one of three Latinas that were the last to graduate under Norma Cantu's direction, ETSA. And um, so she retired from UTSA and eventually went to a different university, but uh, uh, the College of Language of Fine Arts made a big deal of it because we were her final three. So Norma has always had this magic number, and I don't remember what the number was. She wanted to make sure in her role that she got so many number of Latinas and Chicanas to graduate with their doctorate under her direction. And so, we were her last numbers. So I've known uh, Margaret since my uh, work at UTSA, and she actually ended up at St. Mary's, which is literally across the street from our university. And I got a random call one day saying, hey, I have this project idea, and I really would love you to work with me on this because I know your area's pedagogy. I know that uh, all, your recent publications have always focused on Gloria's work, and uh, Norma thinks it's a great project idea, but we really need you on their team. So at the time, I'm a department chair, I'm like balancing teaching, and I have young children, and I'm like, oh, I don't know if I could take on this project. But then she said to me something along the lines of, Candace, so many people don't know how to use her work when it comes to actually creating an inclusive uh, classroom. They read her work and celebrate it as literature, but not, but how do you teach Nepantla? Mm -hmm. How do you teach the shadow bees? 
how do you teach spiritual activism and all these other great terminologies that Gloria brings with all of her other work that is out there. And I think that's what sold me. So uh, in a matter of a short amount of time, we, uh, I agreed to be on the project and uh, we created uh, everything that goes with a collection of book, which you know is exhausting. <laughs> From you know the query to the uh, uh, possible presses to um, creating the call for papers that went over so many several different kinds of drafts. Um, we didn't even have a title down, but we knew that pedagogy had to also be richly connected to the community. Norma was very um, intentional about we need to make sure that we're showing people that her work also isn't just scholar and meant for the world of the academy, but people use her work in the community, especially community activists and artists, et cetera. And so each one of us kind of took on a section that we wanted to see come to fruition. And my section clearly is on the pedagogy side of it. Mm -hmm. And um, we sent out the call, we had an enormous response from people which became a whole other layer of work of reviewing those essays, having to determine which would strengthen this collection. Um, we wanted all of them. <laughs> and uh, we eventually, uh, actually, uh, Arizona Press uh, was super excited and jumped on immediately because um, they had just finished a publication of one of Norma's other books. So we were very blessed that Norma had already made these connections with Arizona Press, so it wasn't new uh, information. And from there, it just kind of went fast forward. It was a normal day for me was getting up, getting the kids ready, heading to work about 7.45, and then just making sure that my time allowed for two to three hours of this book project. And I had to clock those in in my head. So sometimes, you know, work caught up with me, teaching caught up with me, being a mom caught up with me. And I was doing this work at one or two or three in the morning because I had to get done, either sending out letters to my uh, authors in my part of the collection or reviewing um, other parts of it and editing. And it somehow just got done. And, you know, and, and I get asked that sometimes by my grad students, like, how are you doing all of this? And then you work to get this book out. And I think one of the cool things about our world is sometimes magic like this just happens. It happened for us because this work is so crucial, so important, especially now more than ever. Um, and, and there's been an interest in Gloria's work, I think, within just the last five years alone that you know i love it it's great everyone often reads borderlands first but how do i create like an assignment on this or how do i like use this language and uh, i often get from our, our white allies you know i'm afraid to use her work or i'm not sure how to use her work you know and i want to be able to use her work and so that was sort of this kind of charge for the three of us that we felt it was time um, that we show people how to use her work, you know, and um, there's nothing really out there like this at this moment. So I think that we have had been very overwhelmed with the amount of people that have already purchased this book. It's already being taught at one university, Norma told me in Ohio. And so, yeah, that's where we bring ourselves today. Awesome. How exciting. That is just, thank you so much for the work. And thank you so much for agreeing to do the work because I know it's going to be so valuable and um, relevant. You know, the more that I talk to WPAs in different states, it's becoming more uh, popular that the student demographics are shifting. And, um, you know, we have a lot more Latinx students in colleges all across the country. And, and not that it's only relevant there, but we're also thinking about, like you're talking about, alternative types of epistemologies and different identities, right? Um, alternative pedagogical approaches. So this is gonna, this is just such a great contribution. And I really like the way that you described how you, you know, you really did put aside the time to write and to do the editing duties necessary to make this book happen. But I like how you described it as like magic just happens because before you knew it, it was there, right? And it was done and it was working for you. And um, it seemed like it was meant to be, which is awesome. And, um, 
Would you be so honored as to maybe read us a little section of the book that I know so many people are anxious to read? Yes, I'm happy to. Um, so as I mentioned before, like uh, Margaret and Norma felt, well, if we're going to ask anybody, Candace has become this person that pedagogy and practice is her area. That needs to be the chapter that she focused on. So when they asked, well, what do we name your chapter section? And I'm like, pedagogy and praxis. <laughs> so this starts part two of the book. And my section is called Enacting a Pedagogical Praxis of Healing and Hope in Civil Unrest. And um, I'll read one paragraph uh, that I think will give people insight into who I am as a professor, a writer, especially of her work. But I'll start off with a quote from Anseldua. Because our bodies have been stolen, brutalized, or numbed, it is difficult to speak from and through them. We are besieged by a silence that hollows us. And uh, I think that quote kind of says a, a lot of what I talked about earlier, of you know, being silent in the academy. Um, but I, I really drawn to her use of, we feel hollowed, um, you know, like there is no of the inner part of us and I can't even imagine as a professor knowing that a student in my classroom feels hollowed, empty inside, and then ask them to write about something, right? So uh, I, I start off basically talking about, I wonder, you know, what Anzaldua would think about our current climate. You know, um, this book, uh, you know, we really wanted to make sure that we addressed what was happening to us politically um, with this current administration. So it starts off kind of looking at what would she say? What would she say about this? Um, so in this section, I talk about like, it's important we talk about these conversations because I teach at a small Hispanic serving institution where like 8% of our students identify as Latinx, they're first gen. Um, and they've, they're very open about sort of the traumas that have happened to them since our POTUS's presidency, you know, from the taglines of build that wall or, you know, um, we're criminals, etc. So this is called, so what happened to civility? The erosion of civility has extended far beyond our civil discourse with the growing polarization of our political views and the emboldening of fringed ideology. What was once a veiled rhetoric of intolerance or hate now has become normalized. In today's divided America, white nationalists, neo-Nazis, and other extreme groups are granted the right to assert their legitimacy openly in public spaces as ev evident by their public protests across the country. By refusing to outright condemn such rhetoric and openly violent acts, the current president has tactically encouraged the continued participation and legitimization of such groups in the political landscape so they can help make America great again. This public rhetoric soon led to a surge in violent acts, including the racialization of marginalized groups, including Latinx, who regardless of citizenship are publicly targeted as criminal, illegal, violent, sexual predator, un-American, or uneducated. The full scope of this combative rhetoric is irreparable and could affect Latinx families and communities for generations. In the coming years, Latinx must learn how to manage the trauma of discrimination, which has long-term effects on the body, including sense of identity and notions of shame. So, uh, you know, kind of connecting to one of your earlier questions, uh, uh, in, in the last year, two years, I've really been centered on shame. And I'm actually working on a piece right now on the vergüenzafication of Latinx bodies in the classroom. And, uh, you know, I am kind of saying that shame and vergüenza, which is for the listeners, shame in Spanish, um, it doesn't translate well. Because for the concept of vergüenza for Latinx people, 
is you feel like you've shamed your family or your community. It's this bigger, broader version of feeling um, that you're letting people down versus shame in itself in that English translation is just like, well, I, I feel shame. You know, it's very individualized. And so um, I end that section by talking about shame and how, you know, this public shaming at the top level of our world, which blows my mind, um, is going to have long-term effects on our students. And, um, and, and we, need, we need to wrestle with that as, as faculty, regardless of our ethnicity or how we identify ourselves, because ultimately some Latinx student, um, for example, will be in a classroom and uh, if another student has a MAGA hat on for it, since that may trigger something in their body of trauma, of feeling shame or inferior or not wanted. And, um, and so that's sort of my section of the book a bit. A little, a little insight into it. Um, I really like the way that you distinguish between shame and vergüenza. I thought that was just a very powerful passage overall, but that particular part, you explained that so well and how uh, one is, you know, more associated with the cultural aspects. So we're talking about the difference between shame and vergüenza and, um, you know, the alternative approaches and thinking about pedag pedagogy and the way Gloria Ansaldúa um, informs that. And uh, I think it's interesting because it's one way that we see a term that is interpreted through the body, right? And how it relates to ideas of the family and of the ideas of the homemaking and ideas of possible um, trauma. And that's really important for us to think about because um, sometimes if we don't see ourselves in the pedagogical picture, there can be that, that idea or that feeling of shame, right? Um, yeah, let's go ahead and continue with the next question here. And I think you started to touch on it already. Okay. In terms of talking about the current political movement here. And um, let's, let's go ahead and move on to the suggestion part because you already mentioned some of the um, really kind of racist rhetoric that's coming from the White House right now regarding Latinx in the United States and the different very negative um, descriptions of personhood and possible long-term effects of that. So for those of us, whether we're graduate students, instructors, professors, administrators, what is one suggestion you give to fellow academicians during this uncertainty? Well, I think the, it's such a complicated way to frame that question because um, depending on who the audience is, my first suggestion is for any individual to first take inventory of their own use of language. And sometimes that comes at a cost. Uh, so, you know, I got asked at my university, since we don't have a diversity inclusion office, and half the time that I believe those exist, some person of color gets tokenized into those roles and positions um, uh, without us looking at how institutionally um, we need to talk about the scary stuff, like what is race? And um, I was asked to lead a workshop on what anti-racist pedagogy is and to talk about some really heated, complicated terms. I think since George Floyd's death and murder, um, we at the university level saw some interesting things happen. Um, either universities were quick to respond to his murder or universities felt pressure to respond to his murder. And I don't know uh, if it was for reputation's sake or with this outpouring of rage from people and protests around the world, but um, it did, I believe, start a necessary conversation of how we use language. And at the institutional level, how we're using language when it comes to our students who have historically been marginalized and displaced. So um, as you might have heard, uh, I really have uh, centered my work on how to be an anti-racist by Ingram Kendi um, 
And um, the other one is uh, Love's work. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with her. Uh, we want to do more than survive abolitionist teaching in the pursuit of educational freedom. Benita Love, Bettina Love, my apologies. Um, those two books, I think, bring a very modern perspective to all the work that critical race theorists and Chicana feminist theorists and black feminist theorists have been doing for a, you know, a considerable amount of time, which is calling out those paradigms and institutional structures that we're all part of. And I think, you know, going back to your question, like what advice, what suggestions, well, one of the first is we need to take um, inventory of our own language of are we participa are participating in this idea of anti-racism in our classrooms, in our scholarship, in our one-on-one -on -one with students, as department chairs, as writing program administrators, um, are we participating in anti-racist praxis and pedagogy, or are we being racist? And this is an uncomfortable conversation. It's a tough conversation because people don't always, uh, don't always, people don't want to say they're racist. Like, they think racist, they either think KKK or George Wallace or Hitler and um, use those age-old stereotypes well i can't be racist i have a latinx friend <laughs> you know um but i think you know love's work kindry's work takes it to this next level but are you supporting policies that are racist mm -hmm. because you are that's my suggestion for you you need to take inventory of how you use language because for our world of rhetorical theory and communication everything comes down to the crux of language mm -hmm. and 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 that comes down to the books we select you know and one of the things that i did uh, early on in my work as chair is make sure that you know if if we all agree as faculty that we uh support having uh, voices of color in the classroom and we believe in diversity and inclusion and everyone will always say yes to that. Okay, so how many of those books in your uh, classroom are required versus how many are suggested? You know, that makes a difference. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think we need to take inventory and I think for many of us, we have to do the work that matters which is you know, what Anseldua kind of charged us with, do the work that matters. And part of doing the work that matters is publishing and making sure this is your focus in anything that you find magical. So for, for graduate students specifically, like we need more of the scholarship out there. We need more of those voices in all kinds of genres, in the creative arts, as well as in theory. We need clearly that in the field of ret comp, right? <laughs> but we also need people to take it to the next level with being in board meetings or being at that leadership level or being a program administrator and being a department chair or maybe even being an associate dean i don't buy into that age-old myth of like oh it's faculty against administration and i can't even tell you how many times people have said you've entered the dark side zabetha it's like yeah but some one of us needs to be at that table and one of us needs to be able to call out administration when they don't know how to engage in this conversation. We need to, because we're never, there's pedagogy. I'll do us book and you know, our book is never going to fix the problem. One 16 week classroom isn't gonna fix the problem. You know, we have institutionalized racism as it exists is, is always been here. And us as, you know, people of color, we know this. We know this loud and clear, right? So when people, you know, think like, oh, well, Obama was president, we live in a post-racial uh, world, don't we? It's, and then they're surprised to see Floyd murdered on camera. And, and then you thought that was it. And then, you know, there was another murder after that. And, you know, we're still, Breonna Taylor's uh, art has never been brought to justice. And so how does all of that work affect us as practitioners? Well, we get those students in the classroom. And regardless, if we don't want to be political, we have to be. It's our 
responsibility to be because ultimately they're they're watching these feeds of these murders on their phones they're reading it out there on twitter i mean they're seeing it and that is changing their psychosis is changing their mind and this trauma doesn't happen doesn't have to happen to them as long as you're witnessing it you are still participating in that traumatic act and feeling othered and if you feel othered you're going to feel othered in a classroom and if you're in a classroom where you don't see literature that looks like you or you don't have a faculty that sees you and you feel hollow like Ansel Duas says we have to talk about this as pedagogists we have to talk about this as professors and and it's it's uncomfortable work but it's work that matters sorry i got very passionate with talking about this yes it's i mean it's just unbelievable right some of the things that we're being exposed to and i think that you captured a lot of that emotion and things that people are not necessarily able to articulate about being exposed to those types of violent acts um immediately you know, uh, sometimes immediately, sometimes after, and it's, it's horrendous. It's just like you said, and talking about, you know, uh, trauma and how that happens in so many different um, areas of life within the classroom. And then, you know, now talking about social media and the ways that those two are not disconnected and we shouldn't think of them as being disconnected. And really what I, I was really um, drawn to here was how you were talking about the use of language and how we really need to check ourselves and our own use of language and how we're critical of language at so many different levels but especially at the level of policy if you have the agency to be able to change policy which for me leads me back to what you're talking about here as far as your own experience your research your scholarship the motivation for it and how as a scholar, it's almost like you have to inherently be, from what I'm hearing you're saying, an activist, right? Mm -hmm. When you're thinking about policy and activism, and I think, thank you so much for, for capturing all of that so passionately. This has just been so helpful in so many ways. And, um, you know, thinking about going forward and creating more partnerships with community, with the classroom and with institutions. I think that your work is definitely speaking to all of those areas in ways that we need, we desperately need right now in this political climate and really thinking about civility and, um, and how we can help one another through these difficult times because you know, when we're talking about difficult times, we're talking about unprecedented times right now, right? That we're just being challenged in so many different ways. Um, so I also want to commend you for con continuing to stay strong during this time. And um, is there anything, you know, we're going to be closing here in a second, which I hate to do, but um, is there anything that you'd like to leave the audience with that um, you feel has brought you strength through this time or anything at all that you'd like to share as we're closing here today? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things I'd like to leave the audience with um, because I get asked this often, um, our work is, is, is challenging work and it's challenging on the body in, in so many ways. Um, I don't think there's any piece that I've done recently or any publication I've done recently where I don't talk about the body and the traumas of the body. But, um, you know, I'll, I'll point back to Anzaldua for a second. I think one of the things that she does really well that I actually saw reflected in, you know, Kendry's work of how to be anti-racist is that through this pain that we are experiencing and through this trauma and all the things that come with COVID, which we didn't get to talk about, which is, you know, our bodies are exhausted. Um, you know, when COVID happened, we're, we were, you know, locked down and, you know, sort of isolated from everybody else in the world. And many of us had to still uh, teach our children while balancing work, et cetera. And it was exhausting on the body. Um, you know, this work is exhausting and it is traumatic to, to remember, you know, that I was told that, you know, I wasn't smart enough to go to college. I was told, hey, you may drop out. Um, I never went and toured universities like the kids do now. You know, I went to go work. Um, and that's, those are painful memories. Uh, 
But, you know, Anzal Lewis says that, you know, when we, when we pull through this flesh, right, our flesh and blood experiences, um, at the same time, we're sort of, it brings healing. It heals us. Uh, one of my latest uh, things I'm working on now is I've been fascinated with her work of Koilu Shakwi and the Koilu Shakwi Imperative, which, it, you know, I know it's difficult to explain on a podcast, but they could look it up. Um, is this beautiful idea that, you know, this Aztec goddess is cut up into a million pieces and decapitated by um, her brother. And, you know, she reappropriates that story of, uh, of, you know, being cut up and that ultimately our goal is to put ourselves back together. You know, it's this constant action of making, unmaking, and pulling at the flesh and that we are kind of decapitated and our culture and our gente and our people of color and, you know, the, we're, we are George Floyd, you know, and when he died, I think a little bit of us died with him, but we honor his death and the hundreds and you know, thousands possibly with colonization, right? You know, we, we have this sense of responsibility to find healing in our own ways. And that's probably the biggest advice I could give anybody that in order for us to heal, don't get caught up with the distractions. And for me, I label distractions as, you know, the, the real housewives of America or just spending hours upon hours binging on Netflix. Look, some of times that that's meant to happen. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes I could get caught up in a battle online over someone who's uber conservative. And, but those are distractions. Ultimately, we find healing when we collectively can make our own magic, right? Either through poetry or art or drawing or scholarship. It matters because someone, one person may read it and that's all they need to feel seen. And then they could take that magic somewhere else and make someone else feel seen. And so we're called to do that, you know, to grow together in community and coalitions together and to build these bridges with our grad students, particularly, you know, I ask anyone on this podcast, if you have a grad student, you know, who you feel like needs some direction, mentor, take the time to mentor them. And I'm not talking about that bullshit mentor of like random meetings, like get their phone and send them a motivational message of hope on a Monday and remind them that their voice matters. And I do that. And it's really important for me that my mentees know that I see them and I see the potential in them. But I also think as scholars of color, we need to get outside of the academy and we need to be able to work in communities and grassroots communities to make change. And it's brutal because that change, we want it right away, <laughs> but it's not going to come right away and it's slow but we can make that change in our own uh, classrooms and in our own one-on-one -on -one conversations. And for me, that's where the magic happens. So that, I guess that's my, you know, hopeful advice <laughs> for anybody. And uh, if you want to read some amazing people that are making changes, I encourage people to consider adding this book to their library. Um, you know, and I would advocate for anyone you know, you got to grow your library, graduate students, um, and find every scholar of color that you can and support their work and buy their work and promote their work because ultimately that's how we decolonize a classroom space, you know, by using uh, an alternative narrative. And there's so many of us out there. And that's how we, you know, break down those walls, um, so to speak. So I appreciate you taking the time to interview me. Um, I'm very humbled because I totally think you're amazing and I love everything that you write and, and I'm really honored. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. That means a lot for me to, for you to hear, uh, to say that because we need to hear that as you said, and um, we need to collectively participate in this healing process, right? We need to collectively heal um, together. And, you know, by participating with this work and engaging with this work, not only with Candace and I here today, but with the scholarship that we share that I feel that, you know, we do have some things in common in our work and trying to work towards healing uh, some of the trauma 
that we experience by not seeing ourselves within the field, not seeing ourselves within the scholarship and things like that. And so um, I think it's really powerful that we're here today because we both have this mission of wanting to heal and being able to offer other people uh, you know, tools and ideas for how to participate in this collective healing and this coalitional healing is really important. And that's what this podcast is about here. So thank you for leaving us on that very magical note. And um, we just you know, want to say thank you, everybody. And um, thank you for continuing to listen to us. And we definitely want to see you all reading Candace's book. And whatever you're doing for the rest of the day, have a great one. <laughs>